I'll give you a moment to uh, find it if you're following on and you can see Matthew 11:20 20 to 30 on the screen uh, and the, the words also come up on the screen as I read them to us. Matthew 11:20 20 to 30. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles were performed in you, had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thanks so much, Mike. What I'm going to do is uh, throw a picture up on the screen for you to look at. Maybe. Yes, yes, it's coming. Here it is. In five minutes' time, I'm going to throw a picture on the screen for you to look at. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, now, many of you, how many of you have seen this picture before? Yeah, quite a few of you have. Um, irrespective, when you see this, uh, how many immediately see a picture of an old woman? Uh, how many immediately see a picture of a young woman? How many can see both? Okay, so uh, just for those of you who may not be able to pick it up, if you're seeing the, uh, the old woman, what you're seeing is the... Um, sorry, let's start with the young woman. Uh, with the young woman around the neck, you see that uh, sort of row of what might be a beads or something like that if it's the young woman but if it's an old woman that's her mouth right just to give you an idea where we're going or if it's a, a young woman you see her ear over on this side but if it's an old woman the ear on this side is actually her eye her left eye on the right how many can see both now let's go if you can't just come and see me afterwards <laughs> and uh, that's because of my poor explanation but it's it's a visual thing you get an image of one direction you get an image in another direction even from the same picture and when we come to the bible this morning we're looking at jesus and what we're seeing is two very different sorts of pictures of who jesus is that are presented to us very close together so if i was to stop and say uh, when you think about jesus you know what immediately comes to your mind now it might be uh, you recall a bible story uh, where jesus 
raises someone from the dead or does an extraordinary miracle, heals someone who's blind or lame. That might be the picture that springs to your mind. Or maybe it's uh, uh, that you remember some of the extraordinary teaching that Jesus gave. Yeah, you're taken back, say, Matthew's Gospel to Matthew 5, 6 and 7 and the Sermon on the Mount and the profound uh, depth of his explanation of what the world is like and what God is like and how we're meant to relate to him. Or maybe you're just reminded of some some place in the New Testament where Jesus shows extraordinary compassion and uh, grace towards someone who's low on the totem pole in life's order of things. Or maybe your immediate image is to think of Jesus going to the cross. All of us, I think, have places that will tend to go or impressions that we have of who Jesus is. When we come to this last section of uh, Matthew chapter 11 that Mike just read for us, uh, we have these strong contrasting pictures of Jesus. So we get a picture of the judgment that Jesus speaks of. Uh, And there's a a strength, a power, a ferocity about that really then he probably picked up in the second half of the reading. You also get Jesus who gives people rest and is kind and is gentle. And then as you go through this passage, there seem to be statements a bit like in the kids' talk that that are hard to get your head around because they seem so contradictory. You know, uh, how do you get to know God? Well, you need to repent and you need to listen to God and come to him. But then as you go through the section, you realize actually you can only come to God if God calls you to himself. You can't do anything about that. So which is it? (laughs) It's tempting just to dismiss one and hang on to the other. In other words, it's always easier, I think, when we come to the Bible, like in life, to reduce things down and try and keep them very simple. But when it comes to Jesus, can I say we're not allowed to let him be simple when he's not? That is, we're presented here in the New Testament with a picture of Jesus that is quite starkly contrasting, and yet both are true. We mustn't reduce Jesus down to something less than he is. It's arrogance to do so. So let's dive in. Let's see if we can uh, make sense of what we see. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, it starts off by focusing on the judgment of God. Uh, Often, if you're like me, you've heard people contrasting the God of the Old Testament with Jesus in the New Testament. You had the God of the Old Testament full of judgment, uh, harsh, uh, whereas Jesus in the New Testament is gracious and kind and forgiving, gentle with little children, you know, uh, doesn't harm the butterflies, you know, uh, chilled out, that sort of picture of who Jesus is. But here we encounter Jesus and he is the judge. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, Up until this point in time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has done extraordinary miracles, powerful miracles, but people had not repented and become his followers. He'd spent time in lots of towns, Jewish towns, and these towns were rich in their understanding of the Old Testament. They knew that the Old Testament promised there would be a a Messiah, an ambassador from God who would do extraordinary miracles. Uh, Jesus turns up and he does the miracles that the Messiah would do, uh, vindicating the promises in the Old Testament. He is the one who has turned up. He is obviously the Messiah in the Jewish towns who knew this history and nothing. 
nothing. There's no response at all, just rejection. And so Jesus starts to highlight the consequences of what happens now he's come if people reject him. And I don't know if you picked it up, but he picks out three notorious Old Testament anti-God cities. You would have worked as we went through. There's Tyre and Sidon mentioned in verse 21 and Sodom in verse 23. Now these, these were secular, non-Jewish cities. So they were famous for their, for their wealth, uh, their self-made arrogance. They were cities that were proud, cities that didn't need God, cities of greed and perversion. You know, cities like London or Sydney or New York or Dubai if you're thinking about our contemporary world. And these were cities that any decent Jew would have avoided. These are cities that any self-respecting Jew would have said, these cities deserve the judgment of God. And in fact, that's exactly why God destroyed them in the Old Testament. But Jesus then turns onto this crowd of religious people who are steeped in the Old Testament, particularly the Jewish leaders, they're listening in. In verse 21, he says this, Why do you, Chorazin? Why do you, Bethsaida? For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Or in verse 23, And you, Capernaum, uh, you will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, can I say at this point, Jesus is being so offensive Right, he is right in their face, and these comments would have been heard as extraordinarily insulting. Because Jesus is comparing this, this Jewish nation that had inherited all the promises of God, he is comparing them to the most godly cities in the history godless cities in the history of the world. People who had rejected God and not done what he'd said. And he's saying these Jewish people who'd inherited all the promises of God, that you are going to suffer worse judgment than even Sodom. And you can read all about that in Genesis 19. And the basis for that judgment? Well, it's their response to Jesus. If people fail to repent when they're confronted with Jesus, then it has enormous and eternal consequences. Now, I don't, don't know if you can pick up the gravity of what Jesus is saying here, uh, but this is Jesus right up close and right in their face as he speaks to them so powerfully. It's not politically correct, Jesus. Not in the first century and certainly not today. Because hear what he's saying. Jesus is saying there is only one king, Jesus, and your eternal destiny, in fact, the destiny of every human being on the face of the planet, the destiny of every person who's ever lived, will be determined by how they respond to him. Either people repent and turn from living under their own rule and submitting and following Jesus, that's 
what's critical because the failure to do so leads to judgment and separation from God for all eternity. And Jesus is saying every single one of us is accountable. All our family, all our friends, all our neighbours, all our colleagues, all accountable before this king. Jesus doesn't force repentance, but he does point out the enormous consequences of what happens depending on how we treat him. Now, now when you hear that, um, do you find yourself instinctively thinking, that's so, that's so harsh, you know, it feels so unfair. And I think one of the reasons we do that is because most of us live with a fairly high level of self-delusion. You know, we, we actually think of ourselves as genuine, good-living, not-deserving-of-judgment type people. But understand what Jesus is saying here. Anyone who stumbles over him, then there's a massive impact. It, it, it's harder to get a stronger statement about judgment than this one coming from Jesus. But then, when you get to verse 25 in this passage, there's this huge gear shift. It's like this, this 180 degree turn. And Jesus starts talking about his partnership with his heavenly father and the way in which he provides nurture and rest and kindness and cares for the fragile and the weak. And it's like we've done this big shift from the, the old woman to the young woman or the young woman to the old woman, but it's, it's sort of like a complete change just so suddenly. And I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 25, the way it starts. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, it, not a big point, but I want you to see that it's not a separate idea that Jesus is moving on to, but these two aspects in this passage are connected tightly together. What Jesus is about to say from verse 25 on follows directly from what he's just said from verse 20. And what he's talking about are how people make choices to reject him. Uh, that's what he's been talking about up until this point. And now he turns his attention to the choices that he and his heavenly father make in calling people to himself. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 25. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. The wise and the learned. Those who think they're clever, uh, self-made, perhaps feel like they're spiritually discerning, like the religious leaders that Jesus has been in conflict with over this period. God hides the truth about Jesus from them, but chooses to reveal his son to little children. And at this point, he's, he's not talking about little children literally. He's not talking about gullibility. He, he's talking about the humble, those who see their need, those who know they're spiritually impoverished, those who know they need God to step into their lives. And Jesus says, 
He and his heavenly father, they delight to step into the lives of those who know that before God they come with empty hands in desperate need. And Jesus explains how it works. Look at verse 27. No one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. It's interesting, isn't it? The, um, if you want to know something about Sue, my wife, then humanly speaking, I'm the best person on the face of the planet to tell you. Right? We, we have known each other now for uh, a lot of years. <laughs> Almost 50 years, actually. So, and we've uh, lived together for over 40 of those. You know, we've been married for over 40 of those years. So I'm the one who can tell you about Sue's generosity Uh, Her grace, her sense of humour, her laughter, her kindness. You know, I can tell you about about her pet peeves, right? The things that I do that annoy her intensely, right? I know that. I'm not going to tell you those, but I know what they are, okay? We've worked those out over time. Jesus says, and he makes it really clear that only he, only Jesus, can bring us into that intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. We get the strongest warning about judgment if you reject Jesus. Uh, That's what you have by the end of verse 24. And yet, by the end of verse 27, there is that sense of extraordinary privilege if you know the grace of God. Because you know that only God is the one who's revealed his wonderful character to you. And so you're just full of thanks because of this precious gift that you have that you just didn't deserve. So, how how do these two ideas, this judgment of God and this grace and mercy of God, push together shoulder to shoulder? How do they work? How, How do they... How do they come together? I want to suggest to you that without both of these held in tension, then you cheapen God and you cheapen his character. You can't dispense with one and hang on to the other or vice versa without actually being arrogant. God speaks to us about his character in both directions and we need to listen. So for a few minutes, a bit like Forky, I just want to wrestle with you about some of these truths and... uh, Think about how they, how they flow out together. So firstly, who, who chooses who or whom? I can never work out which it's meant to be. Uh, do we choose God or does God choose us? How does that work? Remember when I became a Christian, I was at university, um, third year of my degree. I became a believer and within a matter of weeks, I was pretty sure I knew everything there was to know about God. <laughs> it was just that sort of... Uh, Uh, that young Christian enthusiasm. And within a couple of weeks, I was sitting down with a friend who wasn't a Christian and reading the Bible with him. And I was doing that with another guy who'd been a Christian a number of years, an older older friend. And I remember we were sitting down and this this guy who wasn't a Christian, he said to me, he said, Paul, so do I choose God or does God choose me? Uh, I'd been a Christian maybe a month at this stage. And it was really obvious to me the answer because I'd chosen to come into a relationship with God. So I explained to him, you choose God. That's exactly the way it works, you know. And uh, that's what I did. You should do it too. 
And, uh, and the slightly older Christian who was sitting on the conversation said, yeah, it's not quite the full picture, you know, <laughs> and uh, didn't want to completely undermine what I'd done, but I got what he was saying about. You see, you can only know God if he reveals himself to you. That's the truth. So let me uh, uh, illustrate this in a slightly different way for you. I'm going to, in a moment, put a picture into my brain, an image, all right? And because I know you're all clever, right, I want you to try and concentrate really hard and work out what I'm thinking about, okay? All right, let's give, let's give, just let me form the picture. And then when I put up my finger, you switch your brains on and see if you can work out what I'm thinking, all right? So here we go. Okay, how'd you do? Now, let me tell you what I was thinking. I had in my mind this picture of a blue elephant standing on its hind legs, walking on a trapeze with a pink tutu and a colourful ball bouncing on it, balancing on its trunk. Okay? Now, how many people got that? Right? There you go. We'll, we'll have a chat about, you know, what the Bible says about lying later. <laughs> so you, you can't. You can't know that unless I explain it to you, can you? You can't climb into my brain. You can only know God if he reveals himself to you. But here's the thing. His sovereignty and his grace, they don't destroy our accountability to make decisions to honour him with our lives. Only know him if he reveals himself. You're accountable if you reject him. Both are completely true. So if you're not uh, a believer here today, then it's tempting to say, well, it must be God's fault because he hasn't revealed himself to me. Okay. Let me tell you the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is that if you reject Jesus, then you come under the judgment of God for all eternity and separation from him. And can I say, you want to get out from under that? And you want to turn and repent for a failure to treat him properly. That's the right sort of response. But if you're a believer, I, lots of us struggle with this at different points. It's challenging, isn't it? Uh, sometimes it's just the complexity of the ideas, trying to get your head around all the different pieces. Sometimes it's just personal. Uh, because if you're like me, I immediately can think of people that I love dearly who aren't followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my heart just aches because of that. And I long for God to reveal himself to them. And so I find that sort of pain is hard to live with. If you like me, I need to keep remembering that it's only because what God has done that's freed me from the consequences of my rebellion against him. And I keep asking God to, to shape my heart uh, with that truth and to give me great compassion for those who don't yet know him. But let me move on to the last part of the section where Jesus starts to talk about rest. Sounds good. It actually sounds wonderful. Listen to it. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, verse 28, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. But again, do you, do you pick up the strange twists that happen in these verses as well? So God chooses, but Jesus says we must choose, we must come. Okay, So there's that there. Then he, Jesus talks about the rest that he provides, provided you work. Right? Because <laughs> you've got to take his yoke on you. Although that yoke, even though it sounds like hard work, is going to be light. It's a funny series of sort of ideas that just sort of flow out at this point. The Jews of Jesus' time, they were loaded up with extraordinary number of rules and regulations. They were just like mice on a treadmill trying to perform to please God. That's the way things worked. And those rules, they just, um, they just crushed them because they could never get there. They could never do everything. I think actually it's the most common way in which people do think about God today. That Christianity is all about rules and regulations, provided you keep enough of them, you're okay with God. You know, it's actually the opposite of what the Bible teaches. It's all about grace and God's choice and calling us to himself. But Jesus says here that he is offering rest. Rest. Now, how does he do that? And what sort of rest is he talking about? So there's a few uh, young parents here today, little children. I suspect they might be tired. <laughs> they might think rest sounds like a good idea to me. You know, we had two grandchildren last night, three and uh, one year old. You know, and they're actually wonderfully good, but it wasn't quite as restful as our normal arrangements are. You know, so. That's why I'm not making any sense at all this morning. No, no, no. But do you know what I mean? Like it, the, the, there is a weariness that comes living in life. Or maybe it's because you've just been worried about some, something and you're just feeling exhausted because of that. Or maybe you just stayed up too late watching Netflix. Or maybe you just had a busy week when things didn't work out the way in which you thought it would have been good if they had. There are a few things that just sort of fell out of my orbit this week that I was trying to get my head around. And when Jesus says... Rest, I can offer you rest. You think, oh, thank goodness. You know, because this is nothing that four weeks on a beach wouldn't solve. Jesus says, I can give you rest. You say, yes, please. And can it be at Port Douglas? You know, like, you know, you have that sort of. But of course, the rest Jesus is talking about is more profound. It's more permanent. Notice what it says, verse 29. Rest for your souls. Rest for you as a person, you know, holy. Back in Genesis chapter 2, right at the start of the Bible, uh, we're told there that after God creates the whole universe, he actually rests. Uh, and by that, I, it's not saying God was a bit knackered and needed a break. No, it's actually... A statement about God inviting people to enjoy relationship with him at the end of his creation as the king of creation. That's the sort of picture in mind. And as you go through the Old Testament, God's people, they had a Sabbath rest each week. And it was a time when they sort of downed tools and had a break. But you know, the main point of the Sabbath was to stop and be reminded that God is at the center of all of life. 
is at the heart of what it means to, to live and to enjoy. And Jesus says, I can give you rest. He's not talking about a holiday home at Victor Harbour. He's talking about something so much more profound and deep. And you, you and I, you sense the need for it, don't you? Like, what's dominated the news the last couple of weeks? It would be Ukraine. Yeah. And it's, it's just tragic to see what's going on there. Your heart goes out for the people in those cities. And then there's the fear. The thing that's uh, uh, trending highest on Google right now is World War Three. There's fear. There's unsettledness. There's uncertainty. And then, you, you know, the other thing that's been so prominent in the news are all the floods here in Australia down that east coast. It reflects in the Ukraine the sin of humanity towards one another. Um, the floods reflect the fact that we've got a world that's out of step with its creator. There's, there's a fragility about creation itself because we're out of step with God. And I reckon living in this world, it is exhausting, isn't it? It weighs on your heart. And in that sort of world, we search for meaning and purpose in all sorts of ways, all sorts of places. And Jesus says, over here, <laughs> here I am. I can bring it all together for you. I can bring you into a relationship with the living God. And that's what life is about. Notice what it says, take my yoke upon you. We've got a picture actually of uh, some... The picture from uh, the agrarian world. So that's, that's the yoke idea, the one that sort of binds uh, two animals together as they're sort of stepping out and harvesting in different ways or ploughing up the ground. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and you'll find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is low. Does that look like an easy yoke to you? And yet that's the picture. A yoke which is light. What's going on here? Do you understand the picture Jesus is painting here is the fact that he does all the heavy lifting for us? It's his yoke. And what he's saying is you get the benefit of the yoke that I carry. And if we're yoked to him... We get all the benefits of his life, his death, his resurrection. We escape judgment. We have purpose and meaning that joins the dots together of all of life. Take my yoke upon you, says Jesus. I can give you rest. My burden is easy because I'm doing all, all, all the lifting, all the carrying, all the work. And it's a gift for you. Friends, when I read these sort of passages anywhere, actually, in the New Testament, you're confronted with Jesus. He is so compelling, isn't he? Uh, the one who carries all our burdens on his shoulders and the one who gives us rest, freedom, hope, forgiveness, life. Eternity in relationship with God. And it's all.
because of his wonderful kindness to us. It's wonderful, isn't it? Let me, um, let me stop and give thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we get this unvarnished picture of who Jesus is, clarity around where, where he sits for all eternity as the judge of heaven and earth, and yet also the one who comes with compassion and grace, um, not to execute wrath or vengeance, but to actually take that burden on himself by going to the cross and rising from the dead. And Father, we do pray that we'll be people who just delight in your kindness to us, I cherish the gifts you've given us, I rejoice in the forgiveness we have, all because Jesus has carried the yoke we couldn't carry. He's borne the burden we couldn't bear. And he's done it because of his kindness to us. Father, we pray we'll delight in this all our days. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.